invite you now to open your Bibles and let's go to Job chapter 42 as we come uh, to the end of this wonderful book, Job chapter 42. And let's give our attention again to God's Word. This is how God speaks uh, today. And uh, to, to hear this Word is to hear God speak as truly as if He were uh, standing here and audibly talking to us. Uh, God could not speak more truly than He speaks in His Word. And so let's, uh, let's give it our attention and um, let's hear what He has to say to us this morning. So God has been speaking in chapters 38 through a 41, and has been admonishing Job, and, and more than that, has been revealing uh, his own glory, his sovereign glory and goodness, that he knows everything, and he is ordaining and ruling over everything, and he has his own purposes that he's not going to explain to Job, uh, and he does not need to explain to Job, but, um, but, but is calling Job to trust in him. And so in chapter 42, we begin with Job's response, then Job answered the Lord, And said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was God's question to him. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. That was also God's speech. And Job says, I... I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eyes seize you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh God in heaven, please now give us ears to hear and eyes to see uh, the wonder that belongs to you, the living God. And Lord, we give you the praise, give you the thanks as you transform us by the revealing of your glory to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of this magnificent book, and um, I was trying to figure out some way to stretch it out, and I'm sure that I could have. I I remember hearing of some Puritan pastor who preached, I believe, 40 years on the book of Job. Uh, It's all he preached on his entire ministry. Uh, At first I thought that was utterly ludicrous. After having gone through the book, I can see a faint... Uh, I don't think it's possible to preach um, for 40 years on the book, but it's worth uh, dwelling on, and I hope you've been blessed as we've gone through it. The question that we're faced with this morning is, what are we supposed to do with it? What, um, what is the lesson of Job for the believer today? 
In his commentary on this chapter, Christopher Ashe makes this statement that I found to be startling. In fact, I, I uh, resisted it initially in my spirit at first. I didn't want to believe it was true, and I read it again, and I, and I acknowledge it. It actually was true. This is what Ashe writes. The book of Job ought to shape our expectation of the normal Christian life. We may think that is a perverse suggestion, since Job is such an, an extreme book, and yet it is true. We have no reason to expect that God will treat us in any radically different way if we belong to Christ. And again, there's a part of me that says, I do not want that to be true. I do not want to believe that. And yet it is absolutely true. And while the suffering of Job is extreme... Um, the pattern of his life is the normal pattern for the Christian life, for all those who belong to Jesus. The normal pattern is suffering now, sometimes tremendous suffering now, and glory later. That's the pattern. Suffering is not an aberration. It's not evidence that something has gone wrong. Suffering is part of the plan, a critical part of the plan. And so we will experience Grievous trials. We'll experience the heartbreak of losing a loved one to death, a, a child or a spouse, a, a parent, a friend. We'll experience the excruciating pain of the sin of someone else against us, someone who betrays us and, uh, or violates us in some profound way. Uh, we, we might experience devastating financial ruin, and everything that we have is, is lost. We might experience the, the heartache of loneliness that just never ends. At least it seems to go forever and ever. We might experience the crippling effects of a disease or living with a terminal illness that will take our life in a matter of years. Uh, this, is the, this is the pattern for normal Christianity. A suffering now, glory later. I remember if you're, if, if we just read it this morning in Romans chapter 8, that last verse, that if we're, if we're uh, children of God, if we're sons of God, then we're, then we're heirs, uh, heirs of God, uh, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's really good news, that, that our inheritance is everything that belongs to Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop there. It would have been a nice place to stop, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is part of the plan, normal Christianity. And not only does God call us to suffer, but he calls us to suffer precisely because we're Christians. So we, we don't suffer in spite of our faith, but because of our faith. Job is suffering uh, not even though he was a believer, he's suffering specifically because he was a believer. He got caught up in this great conflict taking place between God and the devil. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the land. A righteous man, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. It's precisely because he believed in God that he was caught up into this horrible suffering. Suffering now, glory later. That's the pattern. Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And you might think, well, my suffering isn't really um, related to my faith in a sense. I'm not suffering because I'm a Christian. I'm suffering because... Well, people have sinned against me. I'm suffering because this disease has happened to me. I'm suffering. Uh, but, but, but one of the wonderful things that we can know is that all the suffering that God brings into our life, even the suffering due our own stupidity and sin, he intends to be a part of the glory that comes later. None of it is lost. None of it's wasted. Not for his children. As we suffer in faith and as we walk the road of faith, as we see Job walking that road here in, the, in our text, um, we see the road al along which God leads his children on our way to our eternal home. It's a road of repentance and vindication or justification and then restoration or glorification. That's the road. That's the path. 
And that's what we'll look at uh, this morning. The first stage of the road is repentance. And so the chapter begins where every Christian life begins. And it's the road on which Christians walk every day of their life on their way to the celestial city. It's the road of repentance. In in verses 3 and 4, Job acknowledges that he has not spoken of things. He didn't know what he was talking about. When he was complaining against God, grumbling, uh, protesting, signing his name and slapping it down before the court of heaven and demanding that God answer him, Job says, I realize I uttered things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. I had no idea God was as glorious, as sovereignly good and magnificent as he is, who knows all things and the end from the beginning. I had no idea that God was all that he is. I didn't know what I was talking about. And therefore, he says, I I despise myself. Verses 5 and 6 are really critical verses for the book as a whole. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Job had been a godly, devout believer. He'd heard of God. But now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust, dust and ashes. Job had a firm conviction of, of, of the truth about God, and yet, and yet through his trial and, and through the revelation of God in, in these later chapters, he's come to see the majesty and glory of God in a brand new way, in a transforming way, a, a way that, that, that he could not help but be impacted and changed, and he could not help but repent. This is what you see throughout Scripture. When people, godly people, have a vision of the glory of God in a new way, they loathe themselves. Isaiah in in chapter 6 has a vision of God in his holiness seated on his throne in his holy temple and and he cries out, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Remember Peter following the miraculous catch of fish And the boat's nearly sinking under the weight of the fish, and Peter suddenly comes to realize that Jesus Christ commands fish. And he falls to his knees in front of Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Could not bear the weight of the glory and the holiness of Jesus Christ. This is what happens when people see the truth about God. John Piper once said that he did not pray, uh, when he prayed for his congregation, he did not pray uh, for God to give his congregation a greater sense of their sin. Instead, he prayed that God would give them a greater sense of God. A deeper, fresh understanding, knowledge of God. Because, Because when we see God, then we see things truly, right? We'll, we'll never understand sin in, in its vileness, in its, in its horror, in its, the awful truth for what it is. We'll, we'll never see the, the actual reality of sin unless we see it in the, in the presence of the face of God. You'll just think it's something wrong, something you shouldn't do, something hurtful, something that violates a command. But you won't despise it. You won't loathe yourself for, for being engaged in it. Only in the presence of God is sin rightly understood and truly repented. And that's what's happened in Job's life. Job was a good man. He knew he was a good man, didn't he? And, and compared to other men, he was the, he was the best of them. God himself said there's none like him. And so before chapter 38, what do we find Job doing? He's protesting. He's vindicating himself. He is extolling his virtues. And then he has a fresh revelation of the reality of God. And all of that disappears. and, and, And Job throws it away. It's rubbish. So what if he's, if he's godlier than other men in the presence of God? He's a worm, right? He loathes himself. He despises himself and repents in dust and ashes. 
Jonathan Edwards, a great um, early American theologian and pastor, had such an experience. He was reading his Bible, he says, and he, and he was reading 1 Timothy, the only uh, God our king. Be, uh, I'm not going to get the verse exactly right, but, but the, um, the, the reality of the glory of the sovereignty of God he said, just settled upon me, it saturated my being, that God was infinitely glorious and sovereign in all of his ways. And then he said this about himself. I've had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness than ever I had before my conversion. My wickedness as I am in myself appeared to me to be perfectly ineffable, indescribable swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or a mountain over my head. I know not how to express better what my sins appeared to be to me than to heap up infinite upon infinite and then multiply infinite by infinite. When's the last time you heard a contemporary author talk like that? Who talks like that? Uh, people who know God talk like that. People who know God in truth. Acknowledge that, the, that in my flesh there dwells no good thing. That apart from Jesus Christ, it's just rot all the way through. And that if there's anything good in us it's less than what it ought to be and it is purely the miracle of God's work in our life those who know God come to face themselves in a new way and those who know God then also learn to trust him in a new way in a deeper way and that's what you find in Job Job has come to realize that God is gloriously God he's not like us and that God has purposes that only he knows. The secret things belong to God. That is the glory of God to conceal his purposes. That God has purposes that only he knows and only he can accomplish. No one can thwart him. He does accomplish all of his purposes. And so though Job does not, he still does not understand why this has happened to him. He doesn't need to. He has a deeper understanding of God so that he's able to trust God. Even though these things have happened to him, no matter what happens, Job is standing now on the foundation of the reality of the character of God. And he's able then to receive what God has done. Remember what Job said to his wife when she, early in the book, in chapter 2, said, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job had responded magnificently. He said, shall we not receive, shall we receive good from the Lord and not also evil? Well, receiving evil is hard. Even for godly people, receiving hard, devastating things from the Lord is a, is a hard thing. And, and, and Job struggled mightily under that trial. But now, seeing the glory of God in a new light, seeing the sovereign reign of God in its, in its goodness, Job is now actually able to receive the evil. He's still on the ash heap. He's still scraping the sores of his skin. He's still mourning the loss of his ten children. And yet he's able to receive it. This is what God has purposed. You see, Job's repentance, it brings the story in a sense full circle. Once again, Job is worshiping God instead of complaining. Once again, he's trusting God. God implicitly, even in the mess. Th though he has no idea why these things have happened. He's still on the ash heap of his misery. But he knows that God knows why this has happened to him. That God has a purpose, and that is enough. Ash writes, Job proves he is a real believer because he bows down to God in a time of pain. When he worships, he has no proof or certainty that he will be blessed. He doesn't know how the story ends. But he worships because God is God. He lives by faith and not by sight. 
He worships because God is worthy of his worship. And that's enough. But God has great purposes, and God's purpose is to vindicate Job. Another word is to justify Job. Job has been under a barrage of accusations. Satan accused Job of having a, a false faith, of believing in God and worshiping God only because God blessed him. That was Satan's accusation. The friends also came with their, uh, their accusations, though they had no evidence whatsoever. But they were convinced that Job must be in a great sinner because Job was suffering. And, and in their little uh, plastic shallow worldview. If you suffer, it must be because of sin. God blesses the good people. He punishes the bad people. Job has been been, uh, burdened, weighed down by the weight of these accusations and and, and trying to justify himself. But but Job fails in that sense. Job cannot justify himself. Even his justifications, he admits, he didn't know what he was talking about. He's a sinner through and through. But God can justify him. God can vindicate him. And that's exactly what God does. The Lord shows up and rebukes the three friends for all their accusations against Job. But notice that God doesn't rebuke them for what they said about Job. He rebukes them for what they said about him. That our sin is fundamentally against God. These three friends, you see, were speaking out of this caricature, this religious, legalistic character, little cartoon figure they had of God, a God that they could control, a God that served their purposes, a God that made sense to them, and God hates it because it's idolatry. They're not bowing down to the real God. They're they're bowing down to an idol that they fashioned in their own mind. This is exactly how Jesus responded to the Pharisees and scribes, teachers of the law in his day, for the same reason. They didn't know God. They were just serving this little image that they'd made in their own minds, and, and God hates it. And so God rebukes them. You've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. But God, because he's a merciful God, provides a way of forgiveness for these three men. But it's a hard way. It's a very humbling way. They are going to have to go to Job, the very one that they offended, and ask Job to forgive them. And not only to forgive them, but to to have Job intercede for them before God. God commands that um, they're going to have to have Job be their priest. And God says, if, if you do this, right, uh, I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So here are the options. I can deal with you according to your folly, or you can go to Job and ask him to be your priest and humble yourself before him. Well, Job is being vindicated, isn't he, as, as righteous, as God's chosen one, the very one that they condemned The one that they despised, God says, this is my chosen one. Does it remind you of someone? But the stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. Here's a wonderful image of of Christ where it's exactly the one that men rail against and despise, convinced that he was a great sinner because he was suffering greatly. And yet there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no other way to the Father but through him. You will never uh, escape the judgment uh, that you deserve for your folly unless you come humbly to this Jesus. And the same is true for me. So it's a great test for these men. It's a big pill to swallow. But it's a test of the sincerity of their faith. Do they actually believe in God or not? Are they just pretenders? Their willingness to humble themselves and to accept God's way of forgiveness through Job, that will be the evidence, the litmus test of of their faith. But they're not the only ones being tested. Job is being tested too, isn't he? You see, these were his friends, and they betrayed him grossly, horribly, painfully. They not only had failed to comfort him, which he had told them, you're miserable comforters. They had not just failed to comfort him, they had viciously attacked him in his, in his lowest moment, his time of greatest need. And now they're going to come dragging their tails to Job and ask him to do them this favor, to intercede for them, to ask God to forgive them. 
I mean, there's, right, if your flesh is talking, go find yourself another priest. If your flesh is talking. And so here's the test. Uh, he has them in a tight spot. If, if he won't pray for them, they won't be forgiven. But of course, neither will he. You see, it's a test for Job and the authenticity of his faith. That's also on the line. Because his willingness to forgive these men is the litmus test of whether or not he is truly submitted to the will of God. Whether he really trusts the Lord. Whether he has grasped the significance of God's grace to him. Is he willing to be an agent of God's grace to those who had wronged him? Is he willing to love his enemies? Or is he, is he content to be sort of a cul-de-sac of grace where the grace pours in and it doesn't go anywhere? It's a really critical moment in the book because Job has a decision to make. His, his interceding for his friends is not just a good thing to do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a test of his faith and our faith. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive other their tres- others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their tres- if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So when people sin against us deeply, we have a choice to be either an agent of grace or an agent of vengeance. Now again, grace doesn't mean ignore it. Grace doesn't mean um, just live with it. Grace will speak truth. But underneath there will be a heart willing to forgive as we recognize how God has forgiven us. The Apostle Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's the test that Job is now facing. Will Job's faith bear the fruit of love? Even on the ash heap. He's not healed yet. And Job wonderfully passes the test. The friends come and Job prays and the Lord forgives. It's, just, it's a wonderful scene at the end of this book. You just think of the love and the grace. Just picture the scene in your mind as these friends come to Job and ask him. And, and, and think of the, the, just the love and grace and humility of this suffering godly man there on the ash heap as he lifts his scarred head and hands and asks the Lord to forgive these men who had hurt him so greatly. It's a profound picture of, of uh, unworldly love and, and should easily make us think about another suffering servant who lifted his, his scarred head and, and with his hands nailed to a cross, prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And God accepted his prayer and God does not deal um, with us according to the folly of our sin as, as we come to Jesus in prayer. And in that last great act of obedience, Jesus conquers death as he dies for sinners. And Job conquers death as he also submits and obeys. Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. As he prays in love and faith and obedience, trusting in God, receiving the grace of God, pouring that grace out on his friends, the Lord restores his fortunes. The, the, the Hebrew reads literally, he delivered him from captivity is, is, is the idea. He's delivered from his bondage. He's brought out of Egypt. He's set free in a new way. The test is over. The Satan has been silenced. And Job is going to be now restored, glorified. It's a picture of it. Having been vindicated, Job is now finally robed with glory that surpasses anything he had known before. He receives double from the Lord's hand for all her sins. It's taken right out of Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of it. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem that her sins are covered. So all the livestock and all the wealth, he, re- he receives back double. Even his age has a, has a ring of double to it. Why 140 years? Well, it's, it's seven, the number of perfection, 70 times 70. It's, it's a perfect number, but, but it's double the, four, the, the three score and 10 years that God speaks of in Psalm 90 verse 10. Um, Job's life is now abundant. It explodes with blessings. He is blessed with, with 10 children, seven, daughters, seven sons, three daughters. Uh, why not 20 children? 
I don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us, but you think about the significance of all these numbers, 10 being the number of fullness, 7 being the number of perfection, 3 daughters, the number of God. And maybe just to honor the, seven, the 10 who had died previously, I don't know, we're not, we're not specifically told, but it's a full, full number. It's a perfect number. I love the attention, I'm fascinated actually by the attention paid to the daughters, particularly in a cultural context where daughters were, ah, that's too bad, <laughs> right? You want sons, you want sons who can carry on the family name and build the family fortune, and daughters just drain the family fortune. Uh, daughters are, a, they're just a drag on the family. That's how they were seen. But not these daughters, not these daughters. Um, the sons aren't named, the daughters are. The son, we're, we're told nothing about the strength and ability of the sons. We're told about the great beauty of the daughters, and they get an inheritance. So they have this triple blessing. They're named, signifying status and identity. They're, they're given unrivaled beauty. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and they receive an inheritance with their brothers, which would have been unheard of in those days. So here these girls are, these three beautiful girls given status and beauty and their father's riches. Does that sound like anyone you know? Doesn't that sound exactly like the church of Jesus Christ? Despised in the world, and yet these are precisely the things that we are promised. We're promised a name. Remember book of Revelation where, where we receive a new name given by God, identifying us uh, as the children of God, the beloved heirs of Christ. And we're given unsurpassed beauty and glory as the church of Christ. When John writes, then I saw the new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. We have beauty ahead of us. True, stunning, unrivaled beauty. Glory. Forever. That's what lies ahead. And we are made heirs as the church of Jesus Christ of all the riches of eternity. Job, we've followed him as he walked the valley of the shadow of death. But now we see that Job has entered into the land of God's riches and his children are rewarded in his blessings. Everything that was lost is restored and more. Jesus says, no matter what you lose for your, my name's sake in this world, it'll be returned a hundredfold in the age to come. What are the lessons as we close? Just a few. What are the lessons we learn in the book of Job? Well, one, we should learn that God, God has a plan. That's not a, that's not a pat answer. It's not a cliche. Just look at some of the things that, that God accomplished in the suffering of Job. God glorified himself by proving Satan to be a liar. God shamed and defeated the Satan. Satan uh, is proven to be um, a defeated, lying. Um, he's a thief. Uh, he's a liar. And we have, we have, we have uh, intimations here of a coming devastating and thorough defeat of the evil one. But secondly, God lovingly purified the faith of Job and his three friends. They all shared the same worldview. They all believed in the system. Good things happened to good people. Bad things happened to bad people. And, and it worked for them until Job happened. And the system collapsed and they were brought into a deeper understanding of the reality of God in all of his mysterious, sovereign glory. And their worship has changed. And their repentance has changed. But not only did God purify the faith of Job and his three friends, but God has been using this book for ever since it was written, ever since it happened, to purify the faith of his saints. This happens most likely in the days of Abraham. And all of God's saints since have known this story. James references in, in, in James chapter 5, remember the steadfastness of Job. And all the saints throughout the ages who've been able to see the truth about God in the midst of their own suffering, 
in their own loss, and yet able to believe that God does have a plan, God knows what he's about, and have their own faith purified as their own systems, their little shallow ideas of God are broken and set aside, and the reality of God in all of his fullness and his, in his incredible, indescribable glory and sovereign power and goodness, that breaks into their horizon in a new way, and it transforms them. God accomplished that through the book of Job. He knew what he was doing. And he prophetically reveals and points to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who, who would, who would, who would uh, lose his life though he had done no wrong, and yet by his obedience even unto death defeat the devil and, in, and um, make him the successful mediator for all of God's elected. As Jesus prays, Lord, do not deal with them according to their sin, but according to my righteousness. And that today Jesus stands as, as the mediator for sinners, that no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked you are, and you're vastly more wicked than you know, that if you come to this Jesus and you confess the truth about you as you know it, the truth of your sin, and you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture promises, God himself says, you shall be saved. And God will not deal with you according to the folly of your sin, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God points to all of that in the life of Job. And in the end, then God is, is magnified, is glorious and sovereign and good. And Job is vindicated and ushered into a state of glory, a, a, a picture of what is yet to come. As, as things are restored, isn't that what the new heaven and the new earth is? God said, Jesus says, I'm making everything new. We already have a reconciled relationship to God, but one day everything is going to be made new, a new heaven and earth, and, and we walk into that. God has a plan. That's what we're, we're shown in the book of Job. And we're also shown that suffering has a purpose then. And God actually seems to accomplish his greatest works in the suffering, in the tests, and in the trials, as he purges our idols and forces us to rely on God in new ways and, and gives us visions of God that we hadn't known or hadn't seen before. He removes the impurity of our faith and, and deepens our joy in God. Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, re, rejoice right, in your suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Suffering has a purpose. Malcolm Muggeridge, a, a famous Christian journalist died, who died in 1990, said this uh, late in his life. He says, contrary um, to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. God does his best work in the trials. I think it was Charles Simeon who said uh, when he was in the dungeons of affliction, he remembered that the king kept his best wine there. So we learn that suffering does have a purpose, and whatever suffering you're in today, it's known to God, but not only does he know about it, he knows everything about it. He knows exactly what he's doing in it. He knows exactly the end that he has purposed for it. And since you are, if you belong to Christ Jesus by faith, you are his beloved child, then nothing can thwart his purpose. And then finally, the blessings come at the end. The blessing comes at the end. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. That's the, the title of um, Christopher Ashe's last chapter here. The end comes at the end. Like Job, we're going to experience tra tragedies and trials and heartaches in this life. We will. God says we will. And we will experience heartache because we're believers. But uh, in the moment of our greatest pain, we need to remember this is not the end of the story. It's just part of the journey, part of the pilgrimage. The end is at the end, and the end is absolutely beautiful. When everything is restored and, and made new and glorious and good. Ash says, the, nor the, the end comes at the end. The normal Christian life is warfare and waiting and being loved and humbled by God and justified by God. All here and now, praise God. But it is all in the expectation 
of blessing at the end. We don't live for this world. We're not setting our hopes and expectations on this world, but what is yet to come. So in closing, what do we do with this book? What do you do with this book? Well, friend, God has revealed himself to you in this book as truly as if he showed up in your room and was talking to you. And now you and I, we face a test of our own. Will we trust this God, though we do not understand his ways in our life? And and I'm not saying will we simply submit or resign ourselves, but will we actually lean forward and lay ourselves in trust on the reality of this God in the middle of, of all the pain or all that we don't understand? And will we trust in such a way that our faith bears the fruit of love and peace and grace and patience and even joy? Will we actually lay it down? Whatever the burden, whatever the heartache, whatever the anxiety, whatever the fear. And in the midst of all of it, say, Lord, I choose to trust. And I take this reality and I put it in your hands. And I want to leave it there. I trust you. I trust you. You see, Job was able to do that on the ash heap without any understanding what was to come. He was able to do that because though he didn't have the answers, he he had seen God and what he had seen of God was enough. And the question that this book now presents to you and me is, have you seen enough to trust God? Have you seen enough? Has has God done enough to prove his love? Has he done enough to show that he has a purpose in all things and in your life? Has he done enough to manifest his power? Has he done enough to prove his wisdom and his faithfulness? What more could he say than to you he has said? The one who gave you his own son to die for you. Has God done enough for you to trust him? Then do it. Then do it. Actually, in truth, on your knees, with all the pain and the hurt pouring out of your eyes, trust God. He's God. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life for us is ruling at his right hand. And so this is my prayer for you and for me. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May God grant it. Amen. Father, you know, our, you know us, you know our lives, you know how often we've protested and complained to you about trials. You know how slow we've been to face our own idols. You know how tightly we cling to our fears and the things we're convinced that we need. You know how easily we tend to justify ourselves and condemn others and even condemn you. And God, we are humbled, we're convicted. Your knowledge is above our knowledge, your thoughts above our thoughts. And yet, oh God, knowing us, you loved us, and when we were your enemies, you sent Christ Jesus to die for us. What more need you say? And so, Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for our complaining. Forgive us for our lack of faith, our lack of trust. Forgive us, Lord, for our refusal to forgive those who've wronged us. Father, I I pray that 
by your spirit, this morning you would, Lord, bring us to our knees before you, the living God, who knows us, who loves us, who orders every step of our way, that we might worship, deeply, truly worship, and trust you in all things. And out of that worship and out of that faith, there would flow the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control as your spirit fills us with all hope and all joy in believing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing a hymn of faith. Though when peace, like a river, it is well with my soul. Let's stand together and sing.
And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all until he comes again. Amen. Let's close with By the Sea of Crystal.